1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. What happened to the great rotation? Growth has been outperforming again over the past month as more market pros, like you just heard, turn bullish on tech. We ask a top value manager to respond. Plus, from your morning bacon to your afternoon coffee to booking your next trip, we'll walk you through all the parts of a day where consumers are starting to feel the inflation squeeze. And cooling off, the NFT business exploded seemingly overnight, but just as quickly, the frenzy has started to dissipate. We look at why and whether NFTs are a smart place to put your money. But we do begin with a quick check on the markets this hour. Seema Modi here with the numbers for us. And it's not
2: stocks, but bonds, Kelly. The big rally in bonds, 1.44% on the 10-year. Stocks drifting lower, the S&P 500 basically flat for the week. The Dow is on track to snap a two-week winning streak. The Nasdaq just higher in the green. The cruise line's in focus today as we continue to monitor the situation aboard a Royal Caribbean cruise where two passengers did test positive for COVID. At this hour, we know that close contacts were tested and came back negative, and the company says summer sailings will not be affected CEO Richard Fain telling me the important thing here is cases don't turn into an outbreak. Nonetheless, the stock under pressure today and poised for its worst weekly performance since mid-April. Chewy on pace for its worst day in almost two months, despite a surprise profit and second quarter revenue outlook that did top expectations. But the company is warning of labor shortages and supply chain challenges, a trend we continue to track across a range of businesses. Kelly, back
1: to All right, you. we certainly do. Seema, thank you very much. Though yesterday's CPI print did see the biggest climb in inflation in more than a decade, the 10-year yield continues to fall. It just hit its lowest level since early March, and this is having a big impact in stocks. It's helping tech and other growth areas to reassert their leadership once again. Bob Bassani has more on this reversal for us. Bob?
3: Hello, Kelly. Uh, Value has done great this year, but growth is starting to reassert itself. It's early, but that's what we're paid to do. Watch for the early trends. Just take a look at the sectors this month. Now, the sectors associated with growth, technology and health care generally have done pretty well overall for the year. Uh, you see some of the weakness here in energy here, but put up the screen on... The month to date on what's going on. The important thing here is we are seeing technology and health care associated with growth tending to outperform uh, in s- sectors that are associated, for example, with uh, with cyclicals like industrials uh, and uh, value uh, banks and materials, they tend to be a little bit underperforming in the last couple of weeks. You see that here. So what's been going on is the market's been rethinking the narrative a little bit. And they've gotten some things right and some things wrong. The market's got right that we've had a big reopening and we're getting great earnings growth. Second quarter is going to be fabulous. Third quarter, good, but not as big in terms of growth what markets have gotten wrong is that inflation leading to higher yields that's been wrong the general theory here now is the fed might be right in claiming that inflation is largely transitory still out on that so here's the new narrative that's involved here the second quarter and the third quarter is the peak of everything peak earnings peak markets peak economy overall we've got inflation out there but it might be transitory yields gonna stay low and what does this cause this causes everybody to be off sides the pain trade that would cause the biggest harm to the most people is rotating back into growth and that's what's happening on an early stage right now even on some of the speculative tech names tech has been good but remember those kathy woodstocks that got killed in february march and april they were down 50 percent. they stopped going down last couple of weeks things like zoom video roku and shopify and spotify for example and teledoc all these kathy woodstocks have started stabilizing and slowly rising too early to say that this is a big trend but some people are already off sides there kelly Uh, And you can see a little bit of anxiety out there right now. Back to you. Bob, I was
1: going to ask if this has any of the traces of the original COVID trade. In other words, the work from home plays working. Um, Some of the growthy parts of the market slowing down is we considered some of the Delta variant spread that's been happening and the kind of difficult uh, time people are having, even those who are partly vaccinated and dealing with it. Is it possible that COVID itself rearing its head again may be the one thing nobody's anticipating, but that the market maybe is?
3: I don't think that has yet hit the market. I certainly hear that as an issue later in the year. I'll tell you what I think is going on. In, in the latter half of an economic expansion, historically, traders are primed to believe that growth will do a little bit better because the returns on growth stocks in the latter half of an economic expansion, and that's what we're entering into, generally are more reliable than value stocks. I think it's literally that simple. There's an old knee-jerk way to play this, and traders are using a very old playbook. Now, you may be right. The whole COVID thing may change that playbook. But for right now, what I see going on somewhat... Great growth still in the second half of the year, but not quite as robust as, say, what we've got right now. That makes some sense to me and to be interested in growth.
1: Yeah, when growth is scarcer, the growthy stuff is more attractive. It definitely works. All right, Bob, thank you for now. Bob Bassani, despite the recent surges that we've seen in these growth trades, my next guest says they won't last because inflation is not going away and the value trade is just getting started. Joining me is Charlie Wabrinskoy. He's head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Charlie, welcome. It's, it's ironic that you're on today because literally if it had been up to about last week, we would have said your trades are winning. This is absolutely, you know, the market's finally coming around to your view. And then just as quickly, here we go. What is going on with bond yields and this growth trade lately?
4: Well, the point is the last week has not changed the total narrative. If you look year to date, um, our fund is up, about, the aerial fund is up 28 percent versus 13 for the tech heavy S&P. Value is crushing growth uh, year to date. We've had a bad week and a half, but that doesn't make a football game. Um, and yes, what the big debate is, is inflation transitory? Because if you look at the actual numbers, the worst inflation numbers in 32 years on the core inflation rate, the numbers in April and May, uh, 0. 0.6 and 0.7 percent in two months, uh, we've got a lot of inflation, and that inflation is not going away. That is going to put pressure on tech stocks, because tech stocks earn their profits 10 years from now, while value stocks are making money today. The big point here is, I just don't understand why people put so much weight on the bond market. The Hmm. Stocks have beaten bonds by 5% per year for the last 100 years. Bond investors are accepting incredibly low returns right now. I'm not going to bank on what the bond market is uh, telling me.
1: And this was the debate they were just having on halftime, which is... You know, if you see somebody like Tom Lee who says, I'm now bullish on FANG and this, I want to be in the tech trade. And, you know, can you be in that with rising interest rates?
4: I don't think you can. And especially with these valuations. Over the last 50 years, the Russell 2000 uh, growth has traded at a P.E. ratio of 33 percent higher than the Russell 2000 value, a 33 percent P.E. premium. Today, that premium is 65 percent. Wow. So it's way out of line from a valuation point of view. So this idea that you're being contrarian by buying growth here just doesn't fit the numbers.
1: Two other possibilities. One is that tech is trading permanently higher valuation plateau because of the pandemic, kind of changing society that much more quickly. Do you buy that?
4: Absolutely not. That's what is so important is so many things are returning faster to where they were pre-pandemic than even any of us thought. We're having... Uh, Theater openings, we're having people in stadiums, we're having booked full uh, airline travel, even people coming back to offices, which I wasn't sure was going to happen. Even office rates are are hanging in there. So the headline is that less has changed since because of COVID than most people thought. And lastly, earnings are coming in very strong. Mm -hmm. All of the PEs of, of growth stocks are probably a little over done value stock earnings are surprising to the upside
1: one more point on this then i want to get your stock picks but as i just kind of speculated about with bob a little bit is there anything about the market trade that says to you it's positioning for you know a covid resurgence or that kind of surprise you know so much of the rhetoric is focused on is inflation transitory or is it not well in the meantime we are still dealing with a global pandemic do you think that trade is fully behind us do you see any traces of this issue rearing its head in the latest trades
4: I'm I'm glad you brought this up, Kelly, because that would be the one thing that I think would be bad for the market. I think the market is pricing in that we're done with this. And if we got another wave, which I don't think is going to happen so far, the medical data says the vaccines are good against the new variants. But if that ended up being true, the good news is I don't think we're going to make the mistake of closing down the economy again. But there's no doubt about it it would not be good for stocks
1: okay so final question that i know we've talked about some of your picks like madison square garden entertainment in the past sticking with lazard sticking with mosaic anything else you'd mention here i mean what should people be looking for for the stocks that will work throughout the next six to twelve months
4: first avoid things that will not work well in an inflationary environment the inflationary numbers which i you and i've been talking about for a year Mm -hmm. are coming in worse even than i expected The market is assuming this is transitory. There is just no evidence for that. So avoid bonds, avoid REITs, avoid dividend high yielding stocks where people are going for yield. Uh, And second, play things that um, are reopening and that are going to work with the reopening. That's the theme of Madison Square Garden Entertainment. Um, And frankly, there's going to be a lot of M&A activity. So we think Lazard is extremely well positioned with a very cheap stock for a resurgence in M&A. Did I answer your question?
1: I think you did. We'll take it. That was very well stated uh, on a number of fronts. Charlie, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you. Thanks. Charlie Wabrinskoy with Ariel Investments. Let's get now to the news. Out of the G7 summit taking place over in the U.K., world leaders are set to publicly endorse a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. It's part of the push to update international tax laws as the world becomes more digitized. But will it work? Robert Frank is here to discuss. Robert, how... It seems to me that that everyone can pat themselves on the back saying, look, now we're going to make sure, you know, companies can't hide these. Will it really work?
5: Yeah, that is a big question. Will it work? And then also, at what cost did we get this victory? And this was a victory for the Biden administration. You know, we have had what Janet Yellen has called a race to the bottom with corporate rates. You've got Ireland with a rate of 12.5 percent, countries like Hungary with 9 percent. Just keep going lower. Singapore with no capital gains tax. And so at some point you had to draw the line. They did draw the line. Initially, that line for the Biden administration was 21 percent. And now in order to get it done, they brought it back to 15, which was a big relief for a lot of global multinational companies. The question is at what cost number 1 you've now got a digital sales tax that will the tax that will apply to companies like Amazon and others. And then secondly, you know the big part of this corporate tax push that Biden has proposed is the corporate rate in the US that he wants to go from 21 to 28% as well as what's known as the guilty tax which is a tax that we put on corporate earnings that have already paid taxes overseas but want to bring that profit back to the U.S. The Biden administration had proposed 21%. It is impossible to have a 21% rate on repatriated profits if the global rate is now 15% because otherwise U.S. companies are not competitive. So the big question now is what do they do with those other two rates? The corporate rate going to 28%, will he come lower? And then the guilty rate, will he come from 21%? to fifteen. So this raises more questions in a way than it answers.
1: What does it mean? I I hear people focusing on Amazon in particular. I mean, are there whose shares, by the way, are only down half a percent right now, although they wouldn't be pricing this in today. Is there any evidence that a couple of these companies in particular might face much higher tax bills, maybe lower profits?
5: Well, it's a little unclear because it's going to be on a country by country basis. And on the one hand, companies like Amazon are happy That they now have at least one rate that they can try to focus on globally rather than this patchwork and there were threats from politicians from certain countries that they were going to raise the tax rates on amazon so there's a bit of relief from them but yes amazon will face higher tax rates on their sales in certain countries as a result uh, of this And, and this will apply to other companies as well Uh, But again, it removes some uncertainty. It'll all depend on what they have to pay to bring that money back to the U.S. And again, that's the big unknown. Biden was thinking 21. And everyone's assuming it's going to be lower now, but we just don't know.
1: All right. Well, we'll turn our attention there next. Robert, thank you very much for breaking that down for us, Robert Frank. Coming up, Inflation Nation, prices rising at the fastest pace since 2008. We're going to look at all the places it's showing up from the time the sun rises to the time it goes down. Plus, a third FDA panelist is now resigning over the approval of Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, calling it, quote, probably the worst drug approval approval decision in recent U.S. history. Pretty strong words. We're going to have the latest on this controversy coming up on The Exchange.
6: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
9: here you, though, for any sticker shock, let's break down a typical day. You start off with a hearty breakfast before you head off. Bacon prices, though, they soared almost 13 percent, the biggest yearly price increase among all food tracked by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Orange juice is up 21 percent in the futures market over the past two years due to tighter supplies in the United States and Mexico. Oh. You're a milk drinker, you say? Well, that's up 4.6% year over year. Feeling overwhelmed yet? How about a cup of joe? The price of roasted coffee is up 2% in May, primarily because of a drought in Brazil. After that filling breakfast, you hop into your used car to head to the store. Thankfully, you bought it before the recent spike because used cars and trucks jumped almost 30% in May versus last year, as demand for cars is outpacing supply. But... You realize your tank is almost empty. You reluctantly gas up as prices hit their highest level in seven years, according to GasBuddy. Higher crude as well as production problems played a major role in the spike. And once inside, you finally get to your favorite big box retailer, you start loading up your cart. And of course, you're on a keto diet. Those extra COVID pounds. So you throw in some fruit and veg, which rose 3% year over year, along with some fish up 2%. You notice that brand new whirlpool washing machine, but you keep on walking because prices have gone up at least 5 to 12% in some regions, all because key commodities like steel and oil have climbed higher. You're ready to go home, but you run into your old friend Gregory Daco from Oxford Economics and you ask him if he's noticed these price increases
10: whether it's labor supply in terms of constraints on labor supply from childcare to unemployment benefits to the virus fear as they dissipate supply will respond and you're going to see less pressures on prices but it is true that we're going to see an environment in which at least for the next year prices and inflation are going to be somewhat higher
9: You say goodbye to Gregory, you shake your head, and you walk back to your car. You hope those economists are right, that these price increases are only a temporary byproduct of the pandemic, a.k.a. transitory, or else
1: there goes all your savings. I can't wait for Greg Daco to watch this. (laughs) I hope he does, right? <laughs> We've <laughs> turned him into a whole narrative. Yeah. Christina, that was wonderful. Thank you so Thank much, you. Christina Evelis. <laughs> inflation is pushing up menu prices pretty much everywhere. Just this week, Chipotle hiked prices by about 4% to cover the cost of rising wages. My next guest says these inflation and labor pressures, like Gregory said, are likely temporary and that he's bullish on most of the restaurant stocks. Joining me now is Nick Setian. He's a senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. Nick, it's good to have you. So are you only bullish on these stocks because you? You think these pressures are going to be temporary?
6: thanks for having me Kelly. Uh, well, no, I think you know it, it has actually less to do with with the, the, the inflationary pressures more a lot more to do with just the fact that people have more money and they're spending it uh, and so we're seeing across the board top line beats that are well above expectations so even if you do get a little bit of you know labor pressure or commodity pressure. Your sales are gonna be more than enough to offset that incremental pressure, so you're gonna make more money at the at the end of the day. Yeah. So that's why we like the space very much.
1: This is a key point um, that I think sort of explains how people can digest all of these price hikes. There are tons of excess savings amongst U.S. consumers. We've had the stimulus checks, but also people just weren't spending in the depths of the pandemic like they can spend now. So they're paying up at Chipotle and they're paying up at the other restaurants you cover, whether the Dine Equity names, Cheesecake Factory, Wendy's even. How long can that last? I mean, if we start to normalize, doesn't that mean people can no longer pay the extra premium that these chains are requiring?
6: Well I think we've seen some structural changes you know off premise being probably the the number one change that that's here to stay. You know when you look at you know names you mentioned like the cheesecake factory you know pre-covid they were doing about a million or so in, in off premise sales now they're doing 4 million in off premise sales and that's actually, you know, been pretty steady, even as the dining room capacities have increased. And so it's unlikely that it'll stay at four million, but it's also very unlikely that it's going to go back down to a million. So, you know, whether that stabilized at two million or two and a half million or three million, you've got an incremental one to two million dollars in sales you're doing without the need to have that much more incremental labor or even kitchen staff. And so off premise is a huge component of, of the structural changes that we've seen post covid. You know, number two, uh, we've seen the digital usage at these restaurants skyrocket. Uh, again, another an aspect that makes the, the, the operations you know, much more efficient. And then perhaps most importantly, yeah, there, there's a lot less competition. So there's a lot more room to grow uh, versus pre-COVID sure. you know, levels of growth. And so uh, there's a lot of good things happening. Uh, for the restaurants category right
1: now. Sure, for the, for the big ones, the publicly traded ones that you cover. And again, your top picks are Dine Equity, Cheesecake, and Wendy's. So just one follow-up question about what's going on with the labor force. I mean, we would expect at some point this shortage of workers, if they're feeling the pinch already, for that to continue to get worse, to pr- uh, pressure profit margins and, and all the rest of it. You don't think that's going to last? I mean, when, when does it start to get better? Is it in the fall? What are the factors that could cause that uh, to improve?
6: Well, I think the the, the first, uh, you know, uh, time period to watch is this is, is September, right? I mean, a lot of the unemployment benefits and uh, schools uh, are, are are set to reopen. And so the expectation is that once, you know, those two things happen, we will see the labor force uh, forced to come back to work. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see what happens after, you know, September. But essentially, I'm I'm looking at September as the key time period.
1: All right, I think many are as well. Nick, we'll check in with you soon. Thank you, sir. Nick Setian from Wedbush on the restaurant space. Coming up, RBC is bullish in Zoom. Shares are higher on their call today. They're on pace for their longest winning streak since September, as we've been talking about. Again, a 4.5% today. And speaking of the growth trade revival, is this rally sustainable? We'll debate that in rapid fire. And there's still time to register for the CNBC Evolve Global Summit coming up on June 16th. Go to cnbcevents.com slash evolve for more. Here's a sneak peek of what to expect. It's a new era for business for Singapore. For travel in China. It's
0: a new era
10: of innovation.
8: A business for Hong Kong.
10: For the travel industry.
8: La Dolce Vita is finally in sight. Get the latest from around the world. From around the world. From around the world. From around the world. world. At CNBC's Evolve Global Summit. Live from London. Live from Singapore.
6: Get all the latest from around the world at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit, live on June 16th.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get a check on markets as we're almost half past the hour. Dow's down 82 points, a quarter percent. It's the biggest mover of the bunch today. The S&P and the Nasdaq are pretty much flat. You could call the Nasdaq outperforming it slightly higher. Here are some of the movers this hour. Medallia is jumping more than 10 percent in just the last few moments. On a Bloomberg report, the cloud software maker is exploring a potential sale. It's now about 14 and half percent, ticker MDLA. Avis budget is leading the transports today, hitting an all-time high. In fact, it's the group's best performer this year. Remember when the rental cars were going away? It's up 150%. It's trading at 94 and change. Over in the chip space, NVIDIA is outperforming. It's up 2% and adding more than 20% over the past month. The stock about 1% below its all-time highs trading at 715. Meanwhile, Caterpillar is moving lower again today. It's down almost 10% on the week for its worst weekly drop since the nadir of the pandemic in March of 2020. CAT down another 2% today that is weighing on the Dow. Over to Seema Modi now for our CNBC news update, Seema.
2: Hey Kelly, here's what is happening at this hour. 22 state attorneys general are urging the US Supreme Court to uphold the CDC's moratorium on residential evictions. The ban is set to expire at the end of the month, but the CDC has not said whether it will extend the order. Weather forecasts calling for temperatures to soar across the southwest next week. The heat wave is expected to worsen droughts affecting many areas, with some farmers fearing their fields will dry up without rain. On the news tonight, a report on the water shortage from a California reservoir and the impact on small farmers. Also in California, 15 people are about to get $50,000 richer. Governor Newsom is getting ready to announce more winners of the state's Vax for the Win giveaway. California says vaccinations are up 13 percent over the last week. The final batch of winners will be announced next Tuesday.
1: Back to you, Kel. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. Didi comes to America. A new bill has big implications for tech. And DJ d set to drop a new single. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on some headlines that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines today, Dear drabosa Ina Freed, the chief technology correspondent for Axios, and Tim Seymour, the chief investment officer of Seymour Asset Management and a CNBC Fast Money Trader, all join me, and it's great to have you guys all here. Um, before we get into things, though, we're going to talk some Deedee, but first, we did have some breaking news in the last hour or so. The new bipartisan antitrust bill that was just proposed and the huge implications it could have for tech giants like Amazon on an alphabet. The bill's target is preventing big acquisitions of rivals, enabling the DOJ to break up companies if they have a conflict of interest, among other factors. Let's get Julia Borson to pilot in here uh, for a moment. Julia, this language to me at first blush reads very, very broad.
7: Well, look, I think there are different pieces um, of this, and some of them are easy. Look, one of the draft anti- antitrust bills wanted to have higher fees for M&A so that the DOJ and FTC could better enforce antitrust action. That seems like the low-hanging fruit here. But then there's this broader question of whether you're going to dramatically limit acquisitions, or a key piece of this is this idea that companies that are platforms should not be able to preference their own options. So, Amazon could not promote its own you know, house brands over other rivals. Apple could not preference its own apps over other options. So I think there are so many things involved in these five draft bills, so many options on the table. Yeah. And some of them are pretty dramatic in terms of the impact they could have on these companies. Though, Kelly, as you know, there's a long way before this could uh, really be put into action here.
1: No, I agree. And I want to kind of quickly go around the horn, so to speak, and get everybody else's opinion on this. Deirdre, I'll start with you. It does seem like it would restrain a lot of different kinds of activity, potentially break (laughs) up companies. You know, what should we expect to really, is that we already know all of these things have been talked about for years. Does this represent a significant step forward?
0: I mean, it represents another step forward. But take a look at the share prices of big tech companies that could be targeted by this. And you're not seeing them move much. And yes, investors have always been pretty complacent when it comes to regulation, because the thought is that any kind of action is going to be further off. A development that we've seen in the last few months is actually state lawmakers taking Mm. sort of these issues into their own hands. And Perhaps they can get action sooner than the DOJ or lawmakers at the federal level. So, again, this is more of what we've been talking about, but still a long way from implementation. So, important to keep our eye on. Um, but will it actually get to that point? And what happens if we do? If you do something like the most extreme, break up some of our tech giants, who does that provide an in for? Other tech companies, smaller tech companies in the US, or perhaps international Chinese sure. companies? Right. Like, look
1: at the success of TikTok. You know, what's your take?
11: I think, as Deirdre and Julia point out, you know, obviously a long way to go. I think the important thing here, though, is it would give regulators new tools which they desperately need. For until now, basically, regulators have been trying to apply laws from the 1900s to the current environment, and they just don't apply neatly, and they don't give them enough tools to really rein in what they see as excesses.
1: You know, does it worry you? I, I guess I'm mean, admitting it worries me a little bit that they go, you know what? The prevailing paradigm just doesn't do what we want it to do here, so we're just going to kind of specifically go after these companies. Like, you know, perhaps if, if society agrees that that is a necessary goal, then they should absolutely go for it. But have we definitely come to that conclusion?
11: I don't think we've definitely come to that conclusion, but I think it's clear that the concerns outweigh what the tools that regulators currently have. I definitely think there is the risk of them being applied too broadly or too frequently.
1: Okay, Tim, let's do the bottom line here for investors. What do you think?
12: fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me i i've heard these headlines before <laughs> and, and i'm not i'm not that concerned if anything the great irony is that of course there's a handful of companies i would say google uh facebook and and you know notably um some of the parts on on some of their core businesses there are people that think they'd be a lot more profitable if you broke them up into pieces
1: yes yes it's just just reviewing the history of big oil, um, you know, Exxon was, still, you know, New Jersey and mobile was New York. You, know, you break them all up and it actually created a lot more value. And then they all got back together anyway. Anyway, AT&T is a similar version more recently. Uh, Julia, thank you very much for bringing us those headlines. Uh, we'll continue to watch the stocks into the close today. Moving on, as we mentioned, you know Uber, but do you know about Didi? It's the Chinese Uber, basically. It's filing to go public here and what will be one of the largest tech IPOs this year. According to PitchBook, Didi was recently valued at $62 billion. They've got huge backers like SoftBank, Alibaba, and Tencent. And it's profitable. It's also more than just ride-hailing. It's platforms, spans, logistics, robo-taxis, micro-mobility, and more. Deirdre, can that help it outperform Uber, whose stock is still down 15% over the the past three months?
0: Well, we know that China is a much bigger market, and this is key. Didi has essentially a monopoly on the Chinese market, so that is a huge advantage that it has to then go out and compete against Uber in other markets, particularly LatAm, where competition is so fierce. But, Kelly... You did say it was profitable. There's always an asterisk Uh when it comes to gig economy companies and profitability. It was profitable last quarter, but that was due to investment gains. Uber also (laughs) short a quarter of profitability, and that was due to investment gains. But Uber also lost $6.8 billion last year. Didi lost more than a billion dollars. And what it comes down to maybe is that public markets just haven't been very receptive to ride sharing. You take a look at Uber's stock price since its IPO versus the S&P massive underperformer. Same thing with Lyft that hasn't even surpassed its IPO price. So Didi is coming into a tough market. I'm not sure that its F1 gave a a huge case to investors because there were some questions around (laughs) the way that it counts revenue, showing that its ride-hailing business, despite having China, may not actually be as large revenue-wise as Uber's.
1: And maybe that's a good good thing if people are concerned about that business model. But, you know, let me turn to you and ask if this... uh, IPO, if we want to call it that, this listing would have happened in New York uh, under a Trump administration. Well,
11: I think we would have heard a lot more rhetoric. Um, You know, it's hard to argue that Didi is a threat in the U.S. since it doesn't operate here. But I do think, you know, the environment is starting to be a little more rational. I think competition with China is here to stay. It's one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans agree is a concern. But I think Didi, by not operating in the U.S., probably wouldn't have had too tough a time uh, under any administration. But again, under Trump, it was just such a crapshoot as to what the administration would show interest in. I think under Biden, certainly I doubt this will be an issue that gets raised.
1: Right. And Tim, I guess that's my point, is there was a more hostility towards Chinese listings in the U.S. It was also over transparency issues, even just accounting rules, and this sense that for a time the Chinese were subjecting U.S. companies to greater scrutiny if they wanted to list over there. So it was also trying to kind of keep a level playing field. What's the environment like, you think, both in terms of America's receptivity for Chinese listings and also investors' appetite for for them, and is didi an exception?
12: Well, I think the appetite here is is high. And you know, as a, someone has been investing in emerging markets um, much of my career, the the opportunities and the sheer scale of some of these companies is extraordinary. You know, Deirdre pointed out some of the dynamics there, and I, you know, I think the biggest issue right now is actually not coming from here; it's coming from there. Uh, the the fear around China's regulatory pressure on some of the national champion tech companies. I think it's part of what's going to concern this one, especially one that has a monopoly presence. So um, I think it's it's an exciting time. I actually think that investors need to have a portfolio that does include. I actually believe that the regulator in China may be a bit misunderstood here, uh, but it does seem like very heavy hands means that already trading at a discount these will trade at a bigger discount to their american peers.
1: It's a great point. Look at the management at TikTok which basically said, "Oh, we want to, you know, have more time to daydream or, you know, wink wink." Uh, bless you, Ina, by the by. The way. Let's you. move along and I talk <laughs> <laughs> we muted the second one. Uh, RBC Capital Markets sees Zoom in our past, <laughs> present, and future. They're assuming coverage of Zoom today with an outperform rating and a 450 price target. It's at 363 right now. Zoom shares are up nearly 5% today, but they're down 10% over the past six months as its post-pandemic relevance is somewhat called into question. RBC is saying Zoom has a staying power as the future of work will likely be hybrid and it'll be a critical part of that future. While the stock isn't cheap, they see an attractive buying opportunity thanks to the recent pullback, Tim, you agree?
12: I, I like the concept of this company being seen not as a communication uh, you know, method, uh, but a hybrid platform, and, and I think that's part of the story here. I think there's a lot of margin leverage to pull. I think there are growth items around phone and some of the other uh, you know elements of, of the broader platform. So. Uh, You've had a big rally off of a very, very big pullback. I think the technicals on the, on the charts look interesting. The valuation isn't terrible. And, and again, I thought those Q1 numbers were extraordinary. So uh, I'd stay long.
1: Ina, a word?
12: Yeah, so I would say that
11: um, while the hybrid work is here to stay, I think the biggest issue isn't around that. It's competition, um, that as it's hybrid, it sort of plays to the strength of Microsoft and Google, which have Teams and Google Meet, uh, because you are really integrating the office with communications. And I think that's where Zoom faces its toughest challenge, is competing more broadly.
1: Very, very good point. We've all learned that there are a myriad of these platforms to work off of, and Apple obviously trying to capitalize on this as well. Speaking of which, Goldman Sachs is going back to the office this coming Monday. It's no secret <laughs> that CEO David Solomon really hates remote work, calling it an aberration. In fact, he's so excited about bringing people back to work that you know, his alter ego, DJ DeSol, he dropped a single. I, I can't read this with a straight face called Learn to Love Me. Uh, Not everyone is thrilled. The New York Post is reporting there's some resentment in Goldman's ranks, Tim. David Solomon, this is so interesting to me because we are straight face talking about the CEO also being a DJ and having these great singles. And someone just sent me one on Instagram to listen to. And they're like, you know, it's pretty good. And it is pretty good. Right. But look at Goldman's share price. and, And the performance under him has been really good. Is he almost bringing... Kind of a, um, an Elon Musk kind of vibe here to this very traditional, buttoned-up Wall Street industry. I mean, this is very strange, but potentially very successful.
12: Yeah, Goldman's is white. She was any shop. Um, but as someone that's got uh, band practice tonight and a gig this weekend myself... <laughs> Um, I, I love it. I respect it. And, and I also believe that getting back to work for many people and many big corporations, especially in the banking and the financial services, where information and culture are a big part of what they're building. And, and, and frankly, uh, why Goldman's so successful. So I'm not surprised to hear him pushing here. I realize their sensitivities and I think they'll I think they'll figure it out. Desaul, I mean, uh, you know. I can't wait to to hip hop around that. You're looking for uh, a collab.
1: I can hear it, Deirdre. Absolutely. I'm cringing.
0: I'm cringing. (laughs) I I couldn't even keep a straight face during the whole segment. I apologize to DJ Soul, but uh, I don't really see the appeal of this. I feel like this is more of a gimmick. Doesn't he play swanky Hamptons events? I mean, this isn't really the CEO of Goldman Sachs going grassroots and DJing, you know, basement clubs. So I question that. Um, his attitude towards coming back to work, I understand it. There really has been this sort of divide between tech CEOs and, you know, your typical traditional Wall Street industries like banking. Jamie Dimon has come out and said it as well. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because a lot of the CEOs and VCs that I talk to say that they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. They're basically pushing their talent to go to the likes of Stripe and Google and other companies that are prepared to be more flexible. So this is all about talent. And I just don't know if DJ Soul's new single is enough.
1: Fair enough. Ina, we'll give you a word on this because it really is heating up. This, this idea that banks are going to have, and Mike Mayo, other bank analysts have talked about this. How are they going to retain talent over the next decade, given all the competition and now some of the perks that you can have in terms of working remote?
11: Well, and I should be clear, in tech, we're seeing the same thing. Thankfully, not Tim Cook as a DJ. But what we are (laughs) seeing is companies that really love the office, Apple and Amazon, both having to be more flexible because of competition for talent. Look, Apple and Amazon want nothing more than their employees. They'd like Apple would like their employees in the office seven days a week if they could figure it out. (laughs) But they're having to be even more flexible than they would ordinarily choose. And they're still seeing backlash. Even allowing workers to come in two days a week, work from home, wasn't enough. There's some Apple employees uh, urging more flexibility. So I think this is something we're seeing in banking and tech. We're going to see it everywhere. People want flexibility.
1: It's, a, it's well said. And now I'm in the strange situation of mulling whether I should put DJ Diesel on my playlist for the barbecue tonight. I mean, it's pretty good. All right, we'll <laughs> leave it there, everybody. Have a great weekend. Dear Drabosa, Tim Seymour and Ina Freed. Well, NFTs were once red hot, but there's been a precipitous drop in sales lately. Is the craze over? The CEO of a digital gallery joins us to discuss next. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime using the CNBC app. We're back in a minute. Welcome back. Once red hot, NFTs are now cooling off a bit while Sotheby's just sold a rare crypto punk for more than $11 million yesterday. New data shows that after peaking at nearly $200 million back in February, NFT's weekly trading volume is down to just $35 million in sales last week. My next guest says that while the market has lost some steam, it's only because collectors are getting more selective. He's so confident in their future. He's created a virtual Hall of Fame for the world's top digital artists to house their works. I think one of them is in Times Square. Let's welcome Roger Dickerman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Artifacts. Roger, it's good to have you here. Why why is there so little activity in the NFT world lately?
10: Kelly, it's a pleasure to be here. The first thing I'd say, we're looking at a market correction, right? We're looking at a market correction. Still all the faith in what an NFT is and the fact that they are here to stay. So that's the first thing I'd say. You know, we we did see some outlier sales. That's to be expected. People get caught up in the hype and the FOMO cycle. And now the builders step forward and NFTs will too.
1: So people are saying that peak of $200 was really when the NBA Top Shot sold $125 million or had that much of activity buying and selling uh, basketball highlight clips. So again, there, there's these kind of attention-fueled frenzies, and then things cooled down a bit. Um, people have a lot of questions about NFTs in general. There's all sorts of confusion. Some of them are exclusive-owned licenses. Others are just, you know, almost fo- you know it, sort of— um, the type of gold record platinum type thing you might say where you just say, yeah, like I have the bragging rights, but the image can still be reproduced in any which way. And an interesting point about Sotheby's being in the middle of all of this is they're maintaining their position as the middleman here for the art industry. And part of the premise of NFTs was actually that they would be decentralized and contribute the artist more than the distributor. And that doesn't seem to be happening here.
10: Well, it is and it isn't. Right. Any new market, no matter whether it's central, centralized or decentralized, people are going to want in. Brands are going to want in. Any brand that sees value is going to want to come in and then want to come in for a reason. So how I break down NFTs: three value propositions. Right. At their core, they are digital ownership. But why have they been valuable? Well, there's art, there's utility and there's access. Art, 50 plus billion dollar global market has always been valuable. Digital art just needed a way to own it. Utility, what can they do? NFTs can do more than just art. And then access, what does that NFT provide access to? There are some wonderful people exploring those things. For example, Gary Vaynerchuk.
1: What are the next catalysts for the NFT space?
10: Well, let's look at who's going to come in. I mean, you, you mentioned Sotheby's, right? Sotheby's just had this $17.1 million sale that wrapped up, oh, by the way, just yesterday. So uh, there's a lot of steam here. But do we go more towards the next collector base being within the fine art world? Might one to five percent of those collectors come over and express that in digital? It's possible. Might the next collector wave come from the crypto sphere? Might a few crypto whales come over one to five percent more there? They are going to be interested in slightly different things. Uh, And then, of course, it could be a hybridization of both.
1: And I wonder if the market needs to mature a little bit more and understanding evolve so that people, you know, can comprehend why this would be a good investment, why it's something to own for the long run, even if it's just what it could do positively for the artists and the creators themselves. Roger, keep us posted. We'll check back in soon. Of course, we'll do. Roger Dickerman of Artifacts. Coming up, this might be the worst approval decision the FDA has made that I can remember. That's from the resignation letter of the third advisor to quit after the FDA approved Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. We have the very latest in this controversy next. Welcome back. A third FDA advisor has now resigned after the approval of Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. Meg Terrell is following the story for us and has the
7: latest details. Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, of course, this happened on Monday, and on its face, you'd think the first Alzheimer's drug approved in 18 years would be nothing but good news that everyone would be happy about. But this is, in fact, a tremendous controversy in the scientific and medical worlds. And it's all because of the data behind Biogen's Alzheimer's drug and the fact that back in November, uh, FDA's panel of outside advisors is the same kind of panel that met around the COVID vaccines, you'll remember. Uh, a different one met for this drug and almost unanimously voted against it based on the data that Biogen had from its clinical trials. The vote count was 10 no's, one uh, uncertain uh, and zero yeses, saying that there was enough data to really support approval of this drug. And so now you have the third member of this FDA advisory committee, uh, Aaron Kesselheim from Harvard Medical School yesterday saying that he was quitting uh, this panel, essentially saying, as you said, this is probably the worst drug approval decision in U.S. history and pointing out it's not clear that the FDA is presently capable of adequately integrating the committee's scientific recommendations into its approval decisions uh, to other advisors we've reached out to who quit this week, had similar sentiments. Uh, and I've reached out to some other committee members, too, Kelly, to see what they're thinking about it. One got back to me and said he's staying on the committee, but he's pretty upset.
1: This is seeming more and more strange as you read through it and learn the details. Like you said, that it's rare for them to overturn this kind of outside. For, it's rare for them to do it in the first place. It only happens about 20 percent of the time, but usually the vote's closer than this one was. So why now? Why for the Alzheimer's drug? The ALS community is saying, well, why not for us? You know, other, and the guy who quit this week, I think, also was upset about the Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug. So perhaps there is some precedent for acting this way. But this particular decision seems more and more out of the ordinary.
7: Yeah, you know, you've done a lot of research on this. That's why I love you. Uh, This same committee dealt with this Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug a few years ago. That's from Sarepta. And it was a similar situation where the clinical data were really not clear. But there was a much closer vote from the committee. Um, This one was almost unanimously against this Alzheimer's drug. There's also just millions of patients who could take this drug and buy it and price it at $56,000 a year. And so there's a key question about kind of spending that will happen on this drug as a result of the decision. Why this one got through is, is it another question. I, I've talked with people who are wondering, you know, what happened and the fact that obviously some folks within the FDA believe that this was the right decision and went forward with it. Uh, But some are very concerned about the direction of the agency.
1: Yeah. With now this third resignation, I think we're going to start to do, you know, and and hat tip to Stat News for (laughs) for their great work that they always do uh, in explaining these to us and for you as well. Mike, thank you so much. Our Meg Terrell following all of that for us. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about
6: to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down.